Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. It's like, I gotta give credit to her. I gave her a really hard passage to read. How many of you had a little moment of uh, panic thinking if you had to say some of those Bible words, those peoples and everything? Man, you did great, Becca. Thank God for you version where you can have it play for you uh, in advance so you can learn how to say those words. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Britt, and whether you're joining us here uh, on campus or you're online, uh, you know, welcome to Sunridge. We're thrilled that you're here with us, and this passage that Becca read today, I mean, talk about a grand opening. I mean, that's the way to start a church, right? Um, and if you remember, last week we saw how uh, Jesus had told this small group of believers in him to wait, to gather together and wait until they receive power, and it sure seems like they got it. We're going to talk about today what, what all this means that Becca just read, but if you're just joining us, we just started last Sunday a study of the fifth book in your New Testament called Acts, and it is the Acts of the Apostles, A-C-T-S, and it is the only biblical history of the church. So this book tells us pre-church. I mean, there was no church, you know, and then, then there were churches, and it tells us how they came into existence. So this is ground zero for Christianity, and it's important to us, not just because it's the history of, of uh, Christianity, but this is our history. We're looking at it through that lens that these are stories about our people, and because we're going back to the original, it gives us kind of a compass setting. It reminds us of what we're about and what, and what the original Christianity was focused on. And it's not that we're trying to directly mimic what happened in that first century because it's a different time and it's a different place, a different culture. So it'd be a mistake to just try to replicate everything, but it helps us set a direction. So in today's passage, today we're going to look at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. It's a big chunk of scripture. We're going to break it into three parts. First of all, we're going to talk about the arrival of the Holy Spirit is evidenced by tongues. That's in verses 1 through 12. We're going to, today we're going to talk about what is tongues and is it for today. And then uh, secondly, we're going to look at Peter's first gospel message, his first sermon preached publicly, and he's preaching it to uh, Jewish people at that time. And we're going to look at what his sermon said and why he said those things. And then last, we're going to look at the response that people had so we're going to walk through all those sections, and then we're going to circle back around with a few wrap-up thoughts. I hope you can try, uh, follow along with your note sheet. You'll see it's extra long today, which means that I have to go quickly. You have to pay attention well, and uh, you got to put on your thinking cap, okay? Because today, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. A lot of ideas are going to come at you, and just hang in there with me. Um, the first thing I want you to see is the day that this all happened. You see that it, in verse 1, it says the day of Pentecost came. 
So Pentecost, um, when we hear that today, we think of it as a Christian event. We think of it as the launch of the church, a time where uh, like, like this super Christian event happens where the Holy Spirit arrives and people speak in tongues and a bunch of people get saved. And then the roots of a segment of Christianity, Pentecostalism, uh, arises. But at this time, in the first century, uh, for um, someone who's Jewish, which is who is here in this audience, as we'll unpack, this is, this is not an event associated with the church. And we've talked about this before, but there are three pilgrimage events um, in Judaism, a time when all, in the first century, when all people who were devout Jews traveled to Jerusalem, and they would gather there for these different religious traditions. Uh, first was Passover, which happened in the spring, and that's, that, is, that is when Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And then in the fall, there's a celebration called the Tabernacles, but in between those is Pentecost. And Pentecost, uh, it means 50. It's 50 days after Passover. So if you just counted from the end of Passover to now, uh, where we're dropping into the story, it's probably early May or June, and uh, they're gathering together again for another Jewish celebration. And this was more of a harvest celebration where um, all the farmers would bring their first uh, sheaves of wheat and uh, bring it and offer it to God as a sign of gratitude in hopes that their harvest would be plentiful in that year. But it's more than just this kind of pagan um, harvest festival. Uh, like a lot of religious traditions, they have kind of like, there's a symbolism that goes with it. There's a thing, and then, but the thing means something else. So Passover, as, uh, as celebrated, is referencing the time when uh, the Jewish people escaped from Egypt, and this avenging angel, angel comes upon um, the Egyptians, and uh, the, the Jews are exempted from these deaths because the blood of the lamb is on the front of their house. But then 50 days after that, in Jewish history, they come to Mount Sinai, and uh, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. And so this harvest celebration is tied to that, that it isn't just that they're looking to food as God's provision, they're celebrating the fact that God gave them his covenant, the spiritual covenant, the Ten Commandments, as food, spiritual food for their lives. And so during this time at Pentecost, just like Passover, Jerusalem is swelling with uh, Jewish worshipers. And Luke tells us that 120 believers, followers of Jesus, have been doing what Jesus told them to do. Remember, to wait and to pray. And as Becca read, this rushing wind surrounds them, associated with fire. It looks like tongues of fire on their heads, as the way it's explained, and they speak in tongues. Now, 
Tongues here in just this paragraph are used two different ways. Number one, it's a physical description of the tongues of fire on their head, but it's also a language, and we're going to unpack that as we go through. So what is tongues? Obviously, tongue is part of your anatomy, right? Hopefully, you didn't just learn that today. There's more to come. You're going to learn more. But it's also kind of an old word used to describe languages. It's like I, I think about like the old cowboy movies that my dad used to take me to, and there would be a Native American who would, you know, show up, and then the uh, the cowboys would be saying, "Well, what tongue do you speak?" It's like it's a language. What? So you get that. But to speak another language is really no big deal. I mean, how many of you here are bilingual or multilingual? Go ahead, raise your hand. Let's see, how many of you? Oh, like four of you. I know there's more than that. Maybe you didn't understand me. Maybe, uh, maybe I could say it in another language and you would understand. So I speak a little Spanish, and I was much better at it in high school. I grew up in Miami. Uh, I could speak baseball Spanish, and uh, you know, I. I um, but I've since lost all that. I took a couple years of Spanish, but I can still say "Yo soy bombero," which means I am a fireman. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. And I also remember that mi lapis es amarillo, which is my pencil is yellow. So just in case you wanted to know those things. So what's the big deal here, like speaking a second language? It's in verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to teach in other, or speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So tongues in Acts 2 is a miraculous ability to speak in another language that one had previously not learned. That's what's huge here. And I want you to see how miraculous and how specific this ability is in Acts chapter 2. In verse 5, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears, hears them in our native language? And then down to verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now, if you could see beyond just the NIV translation here, you would see that what Luke is saying or what he's recording here is that people heard not just in their language, but in their own dialect. So every language has regional ways of speaking, even though it's the same language. And that's even reinforced by the fact that they know that these people speaking are Galileans because they speak a certain way. Tongue speakers in Acts 2 then even spoke in regional dialects. Let me illustrate by just using normal English, and I'm going to take a phrase that uh, we, we've all probably said at one time in our life, it is, hey, mom, have you seen the dog? Okay, but I'm going to say it in different regional dialects, and then you tell me where I'm from as I say this same sentence. Hey, ma, have you seen the dog? Where am I from? <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, how about this? Same phrase. Hey, mama. Have you seen the dog? Okay. How about this? 
hey, mom, I, I found the tapioca, but I can't find the dog. Midwesterners should know this. Or how about this? OMG, mom, have, have you seen, like, seen the dog lately? <laughs> California. Thank you. I just spoke in many dialects. So you get it. This is how they're hearing it. That's what I want to point out to you. Why is that necessary at this time? Well, number one, it's, it's used to evidence the Spirit's arrival, but also it's a communication thing. Because they are hearing, not just in their own language, you have this gathering of people from all around the known world, Jewish worshipers coming together, and they speak different dialects, and they're all hearing as they would hear it in their own hometown. So um, the controversy here then that is debated by Christians still today is what appears to be a difference in how tongues is presented in Acts 2 and then in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 14. In Acts 2, it's an actual human language, that's clear, but there's another view that comes from 1 Corinthians 14. You guys still with me? You got to keep your thinking cap on today. So some view the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians to be a heavenly language used to praise God. And this, this uh, uh, kind of perspective uh, arose in the Christian community maybe a little over 100 years ago. And it, it basically is saying that, that God gives people the ability to say things that they don't understand, but it communicates with God. And in some churches, people stand up and they speak in this kind of tongues. These are known as Pentecostal churches. And that perspective arises from Paul's first letter in 1 Corinthians, where people are standing up and uh, they're speaking in tongues during these gatherings, but no one knows what they're saying, which is totally different than what we see in Acts chapter 2, where they not only understood, but they heard it in their own dialect. And because you see these differences, this is what scholars have debated, you know, for the last hundred years or so. So one perspective is that this is a leftover from Pentecost. That is, that in 1 Corinthians 14, what's happening is people are using that gift, but there's not really a necessity for it anymore. They're speaking in a language and Corinth is a carnal church, so they're kind of showing off that they have this miraculous ability, but they're doing it to no avail because they're speaking in a language that the people that gathered there uh, don't really understand. And then another view of this is that the gift changed from a human language to a heavenly one that enabled people to say things that they could not normally say, but they would be speaking them to God. So that's what scholars are debating in these two different passages, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 14. Did the gift change to evolve into something different, kind of a heavenly language, or just have Christians kind of abusing the gift that God has given them? Honestly, I have a slant on this personally, but I can't really speak definitively to it because I have so much respect for people on both sides of this issue. Uh, what I do know is that the Apostle Paul tells these believers in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 14, that it's unproductive to speak in a tongue if no one understands. 
In, verse, in chapter 14, verse 9, he says, Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. So some here, as we'll see, are even praying in tongues, which if it's a thing, then it would further support the idea of a heavenly language. But even then, Paul says, it's better to know what you're saying. In verse 13, he says, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And that causes Paul later to say in his letter in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So is that making sense to you? If I've thoroughly confused you, then welcome to the, the debate among Christians. So, uh, if, so what Paul is clearly saying is, if a tongue is spoken in a gathering, then it should be interpreted. And so I know that this, this leads to like another question, and I just want to address it briefly. Uh, and this is, again, another part of the debate. Are tongues for today? And there are two extreme views that I'm going to deal with. The first group says absolutely not, and that's called a cessationist, cessationist view. The cessationist view is that once the Bible was completed, miraculous gifts like tongues are no longer required. So this comes from 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, beginning in verse 8, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So this position says that when the word of God was completed, the whole canon of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, that there was no longer a need for these miraculous gifts. Uh, and they believed that the completed thing was the Bible. So the problem with that view is that it rationalizes God down to a place where everything can be explained. And uh, when we start saying that God can no longer do something, then we're kind of like directing God, right? Now, we're telling God what he has to do, which it seems like most of us do a lot, by the way. Um, and we're kind of making God in our image and then directing him as to what he can or cannot do. So that's one extreme view on tongues. But, you know, um, if there's one extreme view, there's always another, right? So the other one is what I'm going to call the hyper-Pentecostal view. And hyper-Pentecostal view is that if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not filled with the Spirit. We talked a little bit about this last week because this view holds to what's called the second blessing. And that is, you can have the Spirit of God, but you don't have the full spirit of God until you evidence it by speaking in tongues. And so Christians who hold this view earnestly seek that gift because they want the fullness of the spirit. And you'll see church services that are designed entirely to elicit that response from people. There's rhythmic music. It goes over and over and over again. It can be a little hypnotic. There's peer pressure of people around them trying to pray that gift onto them or into them. 
And the problem with that view is that it creates these haves and have-nots. That, um, that somehow if you, ha- if you show evidence of this, spiritual, of this miraculous gift, that you have an extra portion of the Holy Spirit that, that others don't have. And it's based on whether you can demonstrate having this experience. But you know, Paul makes it clear that evidence of the Spirit is not an ability. It's not a thing that happens to you. It's character. And we referenced this last Sunday as well. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the evidences of the Spirit of God in our lives. And then he says to the Corinthians in verse uh, 12 of chapter 14, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So in other words, if you're going to seek something as a Christian, seek something that is useful to building the church up. Seek to serve. Seek to teach. Seek to encourage one another. So in the end, we don't have to hold either one of these extreme views, you guys, uh, that all Christians who are truly filled with the Spirit must practice this gift or that no Christians should uh, have this gift. Because we can neither stick God in a box and say, you must be this way, or, and we can't turn God into a magician that is just doing these miraculous things for us. The bottom line is this. When it comes to what, how God has gifted us, whether it's tongues or serving or maybe he's given you resources, we should use the gifts God has given us to build others up. Whatever God has given us, they, he has given us those resources to help one another, to spur us on to love and good works. So that's tongues. You guys ready for two more sections? Still with me? Slap your neighbor, wake them up. Wow, some of you actually did it. I'm kind of concerned. So uh, this next section is Peter's uh, sermon to the Jews, and it's in uh, verses 13 through 36. And I I want you to know that if you read this, uh, it will be weird to interpret it for you because um, Peter here is not talking to a general population. He's talking to Jews, people who have Judaism as their history, And he's referencing their particular history. And in fact, almost, I want to say every, but I'm going to say virtually just to cover my basis here because I didn't think this all the way through. Um, Virtually everyone who's converted in the first eight chapters of Acts is Jewish. So that's going to be part of this story. And what Peter's doing here is he's framing the gospel to his audience. So this isn't a template for how to give the gospel today but we are going to learn some general things from it. So I want you to see, first of all, that Peter explains what they're seeing because they said, you guys are drunk. These people are drunk. And then Peter stood up in verse 14 with the 11 and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. So you could say this because these are good Jewish people and they're not going to get drunk at 9 a.m. So they're not drunk. No, verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, who's one of their prophets. Talk about him in a minute. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. 
Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. So what Peter's saying in his message to them is, this is a fulfillment of something you people, his audience, has always, you've always believed. And he's specifically noting one of their first prophets, uh, Joel precedes uh, both Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he's, he's one of the first prophets in the southern kingdom. And he's saying that this is what will happen. So he's, he's saying what you just saw is a completion of what your own prophet has been telling you. These are devout Jews that Peter is speaking to. They're at least interested in Jesus. Maybe some of them are close to conversion. And he's reminding them that this thing that happened is something that they've always looked forward to. You know, have you ever taken like a really long travel time to go on vacation? Like you get up early, you drive to the airport, you get on a plane eventually if it's on time, and you fly somewhere, and then, then you walk through the airport or take the, the manway thing, and you get to your next flight, and then you change, you know, you go to a different gate, you get on another flight, and then you arrive where you were going, and you take the tram somewhere in the airport to get your rental car. Then you get in your rental car and you drive further and uh, you finally get to your destination. That's what Peter's saying to them. You've been on this journey as a people all this time and now you've arrived. This is the moment that you've been waiting for. And the biggest thing that is happening here is who God is working through and who he's speaking through in the world. Because in the past, the Jews were accustomed to God's spirit speaking through a few people. They're prophets, they're priests, and maybe an occasional military leader. But here he's saying, the prophet Joel told you that eventually the spirit is going to break out on all people. So that through the resurrection, God's spirit is being poured out, not just on the Jewish people, but on Gentiles as well. And he's setting up, God is setting up this expansion of the gospel that we talked about last week in Acts 1.8. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And it's striking here that the spirit isn't falling on their chief priests or the Pharisees. It's falling on all people. And then Peter preaches kind of a gospel to Jewish people. In verse 22, he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Remember, this is just not even two months after Jesus was executed and resurrected. So this story that he's telling them about what you know about Jesus and his resurrection is fresh in their mind. Many of them were witnesses to it. Even if they don't reside in Jerusalem, they were there for the events during Passover. So God confirmed this Jesus with evidence before them as well. But Jesus was no victim. In verse 24, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death could not hold Jesus, and they are witnesses to this. They have seen this with their own eyes, 
And so when Peter talks about the resurrection, he's, it's like, it's just two months in their past, in the city where it happened. And it is a foundational truth to Christianity, and he's just reminding them of what they saw, of what they actually observed. In verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. And so the conclusion of Peter's gospel to uh, these Jews in the first century is that the cross is no longer an object of death, but of life. And the Christian message is not one of condemnation, but one of hope. And I think that there's something for every Christian to take away from that. That the gospel is a message of hope. I think we can lose sight of that. Then, the last section, so we are moving toward the conclusion of this sermon. You guys still okay? Smack your neighbor again. Only hit him a little harder this time. Okay. In verses 37 through 41, we see the, the response that they have. In verse 37, when the, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to, the, to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They're, they're so impacted. By Peter's words, they're just like, what do we do? And you know, I can remember that when I became a Christian a very long time ago, in 1972, and I remember not the message so much, but I remember being so impacted by that message. I was not a church-going person by any means. I've told you those stories. But I remember God piercing my heart, cutting my heart, cutting to my heart, and me saying, God, what do I do about this? And in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So in this one day, the Holy Spirit comes, as Miraculous languages are spoken. People hear a message from Peter. Probably Peter is speaking in tongues. We don't know. But everyone's hearing it in their own dialect. And his message cuts through to their heart. And 3,000 people respond. Which makes me feel a little insecure about my messages sometime. Every time I read that. So here's a couple things I want to talk about in wrapping up. First of all, in your notes, you see there's a section, what are the elements of the gospel? And I think even though we don't take Peter's message directly, we can pull some things out, some highlights. So number one, uh, the gospel means that we must turn from our own way. That's the word repent, to turn. And I don't, I don't just use sin here, repent from sin, because at least in their case, he's calling them to turn from their ways of moral performance. Remember, these people are devout Jews that Peter's speaking to, so they don't have a big sin problem. They're, they're morally good people, probably some of the best people on the planet at this time. What in the world do they need to repent from? They need to repent from worship of self. We can do that. We can worship ourselves in a sinful way, 
or a moral way. And what the gospel says is we must turn from our way, from the pursuit of our way, whether it is a sinful and destructive way or it is a morally directed performance way which is destructive as well. Number two, not just turn from your own way, but then commit yourself to God's way and his people. I want you to see in verse 38, Peter replied to them when they said, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting here that Peter doesn't say repent and believe, which is often the New Testament pattern. Jesus said repent and believe. It is accurate to say that we should repent and believe in becoming a Jesus follower, but believe only leaves out an important aspect that I think Peter's bringing out here. Because repent and believe makes it too individualistic. It makes it too personal. What do I mean by that? Public baptism is a symbol of salvation. We baptize right here um, in our little pool here. Um, But in the first century, people were baptized into an organization. It wasn't just Christian. People were baptized into all kinds of groups and sects and uh, as a way of showing their alignment with that group. And in the case of a Christian, when you're baptized, you're identifying yourself not just with the message of salvation, but with those who believe the same as you. So think about it here. You have these traditional Jews, and they're being told that they must repent and be baptized. In other words, they, they're being called not just to a new belief system, but also a new social segment that they're going to be a part of. Up until now, they're Jewish in their belief, they're Jewish in their worship, and they're Jewish in their community. So for them to respond to the gospel means to change their beliefs, certainly. But it is also, that they're, it is also calling them to identify through baptism with an entirely different social group. Because in the future, well, let's say this. In the past, they've been worshiping at synagogue with their fellow followers of Judaism. But eventually, they're going to break from that. And they're going to be identifying with a group of people who are eventually called Christians. So this connection that they have with this new social segment is as radical and as simple as who they're going to hang out with the next weekend. They're not going to, some of them, I mean, this is a process, right? But to just put it simply, they're not going to go to synagogue anymore. They're going to go to church. And that's going to be radical for them. So the gospel, responding to the gospel, is to turn from worshiping myself, either uh, pagan or religious ways. And it's also to accept, believe in Jesus, and then to identify with his people. And I know you are all here this morning, but this is why it is so incongruent for a Christian to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Because you're saying that you don't identify with the people that Jesus died for and loves, that that he gave his life for. So to believe, the gospel is to believe in Jesus 
through his saving grace on the cross, but it is also to identify yourself with his children. Amen? Okay. Just making sure you're still with me. Thirdly, the element of the gospel is to accept the forgiveness that is freely given through Jesus Christ. So it's to turn, is to, to believe and identify with his people, but also to accept that forgiveness. See, we all have sin, a sin problem, don't we? And our sins look different. We have, our different, we have different ways of sinning. I, I love what, I've used this before, but Augustine said that sin is disordered love. So we can love uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We can love our own autonomy to make our own choices about our life. We can love our own moral performance and our right to earn our salvation and feel better about ourselves. And we can love our own righteousness or our own rightness. Um, in our own right to determine what that rightness looks like. The gospel is that Jesus accomplished all of that for us. That our forgiveness that Christ gives us releases us from the burden of trying to live up to our own standard or live down to our lowest standard. And last... The last element of the gospel is to live according to God's way as empowered by the Holy Spirit. What has God designed for his people from the very day of creation? It is to live out his purposes in the world, to reflect his image. That's been consistent from Adam and Eve to you, Christian, in 2022 in the Temecula Valley. To be his people as an individual, and as a group called the church, and to demonstrate to the world his glory, and to witness to that good news through the power of the Spirit, through our actions, and through our words. And that witness happens in every corner of our lives. It doesn't just happen at church, not just when we're out talking about Jesus with someone. It happens in our place of work, in our homes, in our marriage, when we parent, like when we're in Little League, whatever it is, we are witnesses to what God is doing in the world. And remember,